Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners, thanks for tuning in and listening to what will be the second last podcast for the 2020 Pebble in the Pond podcast season. Looking forward to bringing you another season next year, obviously, but this will be the second last in this year's sequence. This, uh, today's episode is about mental ill health and the power of the peer workforce. Employing people with lived experience in peer worker roles to support others offer a range of benefits. They know what it's like to experience mental ill health and can share experiences of personal recovery and seem to be able to relate a lot better. This week's podcast guest, Faye Jackson, is the General Manager of Inclusion at Flourish Australia, a large specialist care management organisation supporting people with mental health issues. She was the inaugural Deputy Commissioner with the New South Wales Mental Health Commission and founder of independent consultancy and training body Vision in Mind. Faye is a leader in lived experience and peer workforces in Australia. She sits on a multitude of national committees and collaborative working groups, including the National Mental Health Commission, Vision 2030, Working Group, and also other subcommittees. She is a member of the National Consumer and Carer Registrar. She is also a member of the New South Wales Agency for Clinical Innovation and Clinical Excellence Commission Council. So tune in this week to find out more about Faye's background with mental ill health and gain insight into the peer workforce, including roles, changes, challenges, and future developments. Faye also delves into the importance of culture in supporting lived experience, as well as what Flourish Australia is currently working on and planning for the future. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our podcast. Today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Faye Jackson. Faye, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Sam. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, we had, for those of you who don't know, we had Faye present at our uh, workplace mental health uh, symposium the other the other week. It seems like a while ago yeah. now, but uh, we had you, uh, and was so so amazing. You had such good feedback from a lot of uh, the people that were on um, tuning into that, and so I thought. What a great idea to have a chat with you today. So, Faye, welcome. And uh, and do we want to start? Maybe if you just wouldn't mind giving us a bit of a bit of background, um, a bit of background with yourself, and uh, and then we can segue into how you got to where you are today. Does that sound okay? Oh, sure. <laughs> I guess segueing into how I got to where I am today is also the background, I suppose, in that. Um, I, uh, I have a lived experience um, of what um, doctors term as one of the serious and enduring mental health issues. Um, and that was, so my madness was what actually first um, got me into 
mental health <laughs> from a, a different perspective to um, to what most psychologists and psychiatrists who might be watching this <laughs> got into mental health. So, um, so but you know, there's different doors <laughs> for uh, people to get in different directions, aren't there? So, um, I started my first job was as a peer worker in the public mental health system uh, in uh, a, a regional area in New South Wales. Okay. Uh, and I was there as a peer worker for um, only about a year before I became a manager and then grew the peer workforce. And that was about 25 years ago or something like that. And um, I employed eight peer workers um, and they were absolutely fantastic. And back in those days, eight peer workers in a public system was completely unheard of and is often really unheard of nowadays too, which is a, a great yeah. shame. You know, it, it, um, I'm afraid that I don't feel that uh, people can tell me that they've tried everything um, and so end up resorting to seclusion and restraint if they haven't tried getting a peer worker to talk with the person who's distressed and sit alongside them. Peer workers are such a valuable um, member of a team in, in either the public system or the, or the not-for-profit. They're just really valuable. So I was worked as a manager um, there for a couple of years and then I became the director of, it's called, I don't use the word consumer myself usually, but this yeah. was the title, was the Director of Consumer Care and Community Affairs. Okay. Uh, and uh, I, so I was one of the directors of that large mental health service. What, what and, year roughly uh, are we talking, Faye? It's about, um, about, 20, about 20 years ago, 22 years ago, okay. somewhere around there. Okay, so yeah. around the end of the 1999 or something around yeah. there. Yeah, no. You're, I mean, you're right. Peer workers. I mean, that was sort of. I mean, nowadays. Uh, I mean, they're playing such a vital role. Um, but I mean, for you guys to be doing this back in 1998 or 99, I mean, you could see the value of having these peer workers in the workplace. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, the thing, I, I, I don't know. In I, I don't think that actually peer workers are playing a vital role in lots of services. Um, it seems like there's still quite a blocking and a barrier to peer work. And I think, I think that people find it really hard to understand how something so simple can be so powerful. You know, the, the using your lived experience, and it needs to always, a good peer worker always uses their lived experience purposefully. They don't just tell their story um, because, for the sake of telling their story. Um, they, they need to, everything that a peer worker says and does should have a, a, a really purposeful reason for doing so, um, so that it supports the people that they're supporting um, or um, helps staff to understand what might be going on um, by, by sharing that. It, um, using our lived experience purposefully can really inform policies and protocols and, you know, every, every component of the design, delivery, 
um, review and reporting of a service should be um, led by, I would argue, led by lived experience mm. being there front and centre. Certainly um, in services, that, you know, it, they need to be part of that really collaborative team and they are part of the lead, should be part of the leadership that, that produces a really, uh, a service that responds to what the person needs, to what the people need, not, not the service being there for the service sake. I do often see that, you know, certainly staff are really important. They're incredibly important and their well-being is incredibly important. Um, but if, if peer workers and, and other designates, so my roles as a manager and as a director weren't called peer worker roles, but they were designated lived experience roles. And my um, being prepared to, in a purposeful way, share my vulnerability meant that staff shared their vulnerability with me too. And when I was the director, I, I did some research about how much time I spent um, in, you know, the different tasks. Um, and I actually spent 20, just over 27% of my time supporting the clinical staff and nurses and not not my peer workers we you know the wow. the peer workers we just caught in with each other all the time as we went along and that so we were you know doing well and in a safe place yeah. but the staff back then and this is changing and I'm so grateful that it's changing for for all stakeholders sake I'm so grateful that it's changing the, the staff was trying to hide their lived experience. If you're trying to do that, you're on edge all the time. Yeah. You're anxious. You know, you're you're also anxious that's going to get triggered and you're anxious that no one's going to understand. You're anxious if they might see that you're afraid or that you're distressed. Or And if you're anxious all the time, in that's that's supposed to be in an environment that's a healing, caring, nursing environment, People pick up on that anxiety. They pick up on that, that, that stress and tension. And some people, when they're anxious, become angry and aggressive, you know, aggressive yeah. and defensive. And um, they pick up on that. People with mental health issues are very sensitive, very alert to any threat. Um, so they can pick up on that. And it kind of builds up a threatening environment, you know. Um, so... Whereas if you've got really valued peer workers or people with lived experience in that environment, it's a really calming, um, it can be a very calming situation, but there needs to be respect there for that to happen. If you look over the last 20 years, the peer workers that you've been involved and seen uh, the, the value that peer workers are bringing, what have been some of the biggest challenges uh, with them coming in to help? I mean, they're not, have you seen over the years yeah. what have you seen the biggest challenges are definitely about stigma and discrimination um from from the staff i'm afraid so from um, other staff yeah yeah from the non-peer staff from the non-lived experience staff as i said in the beginning i think there's a real um I think people really find it difficult to understand how this really simple way of working can be so powerful. And I, I think, I think if you're, 
finding that difficult and and see I've had nurses actually come up to my nose and say to me if this is so good if peer work is so good then why did I bother doing six years at uni and I have to say that when someone has an attitude towards peer work like that and that kind of taking it personally feeling sort of you know blocking and and not prepared to see the value in it for them as well I do feel like saying yeah why did you why did you spend six years (laughs) at uni you know we we do need really great nurses I, I I know one nurse in particular who I know lots of great nurses but I know one nurse in particular who has been who's been more healing in my journey than the medications ever have been, you know. Is that right? Um, and he, yeah, for sure. And he he treated me, he treats me still um, with respect, just as a human, doesn't look at me as a diagnosis. Um, and he is a healer, you know, just by being respectful and and seeing me as a whole person rather than a diagnosis that is healing you know and that makes me it i i've seen not just me i won't just tell my story here i've seen people like when i was working in on the psych wards um i saw a gentleman that used to come in very regular um the 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 terrible phrase that used to be called was frequent fly you know that's that's a really awful phrase to use about a person you can if i hear that phrase i know that there's disrespect uh, about you know the the people who are really struggling really suffering anyway this day he was walking down the hallway um with a police officer beside him now usually this um young man was brought in in the star position face down star position four people one on each leg carrying him in you know and this day he was walking in beside a police officer and I said Pete you're back and he said yeah and I said you're walking in this time with with this police officer and he said yeah you know the first time a policeman has given me any respect and treated me like a person and it's made me feel like, well, I should treat him with respect Mm. and it's made me feel like I should treat other people with respect and I should stop doing what I've been doing to self-destruct. And honest to God, this is the fair income truth it was the last time in the four years that I was there it was the last time I saw that young man come back on ward you know it just what a a relationship can do what an interaction even if it's a short one can do can make or break a person for for a short while or for a long while you know Um, because if that man was put into seclusion and restraint again then it was another uh, another um, trauma on top of his previous traumas, you know. So it's really quite remarkable. And um, when I see in services where they have, in public services when they, where they've really recognised the value of peer work, the culture changes. 
And but I actually think it's culture that underbeds a good service or a bad service. So it's bad culture or it's good culture, you know. And when I was a deputy commissioner going into the different services, I was New South Wales um, deputy mental health commissioner, and I went into a lot of different services. Now, in New South Wales, all of those public services are operating under the same policies, protocols, funding arrangements, you know, all of that's the same, but the different, there was a remarkable difference between the different services. And it was what was underlying that all the time was culture. Um, one of the um, regional um, hospitals, I, I'm, because, because it's praise, I'm going to say their name, um, but um, Goulburn Base Hospital, they had an amazing culture there. And I spoke with the director about this, you know, what was going on there. And there's a, a, um, a peer worker that has been there for, for years. He's now doing something about the, the bushfires and one thing or another. He's working in mental health, but he's working for it. And his name's Butch. And she said to me that when, when New South Wales went to that they were going to be publishing the seclusion and restraint numbers, she looked back over um, all of the seclusion and restraint um, episodes that had been and she noticed that when this um, particular peer worker was on duty, there were no occasions of seclusion and restraint. And that director um, really was valued Butch and listened to what he was saying, listened to his ideas. And they had, they allowed the people to have their phones with them. They had their own lockers where they could put their phones in and out. The people made the, um, the, the rules about how the phones could and couldn't be used and things like that. And it was really amazing that the difference in that um, ward to if I went into some others whose names I won't remember, uh, whose name I do remember but <laughs> won't mention. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really quite remarkable. And it was, it was about there being a peer worker there. But more than that, it was about the valuing, the staff, the director, the clinicians valuing the opinion of that peer worker and utilising him in a very collaborative way to design um, how they were going to run their service, you know. And, and that then helped staff. I know that there were other staff there that had lived experience. They felt because they saw the, that the lived experience, Butcher's lived experience being valued, they were more open about their own lived experience. So it, it created this overall very harmonious um, team. It was, it was beautiful. Do you think that's one of the challenges is that their peer workers weren't being taken or could not be taken seriously uh, on what they say and their input is not being valued? I think that it, it isn't taken seriously, but it's not because it can't, because it can yeah. <laughs> and it should be taken seriously. Um, so I think that more and more it is being taken seriously. I think that there are more and more individual clinicians and nurses um some nurses like being called clinical staff and some don't so i'm not really sure so but there are more and more um 
clinicians, nurses, psychologists, whatever, really starting to recognise the value of um, peer work. I think that it was very difficult for a while because what peer work was wasn't understood. And in some services, I think that they had a very... um, um, well, patronising and negative attitude towards the value of um, peer work um, in thinking that all it was was that they'd sit and have a cup of coffee and and talk about um, their problems with the person, you know, share a cigarette, have coffee, talk about their problems. That's If that's what was going on, that's not actually peer work, you know. So that's not sharing your lived experience purposefully. So I think it... In some cases, it got a bad rap because yeah. of that. Um, but in other cases, too, I think it was that the they were given the peer workers were given such a hard time that that their well being was really undermined, and so they were set up to fail. You know, it was like, see, you can't have them working for us. They go crazy. You know, they go mad. They have a breakdown. They can't cope. Um, but in fact. What was anybody that's being bullied and ostracised and things like they end up feeling like that too. Yeah. So that's what the peer, a lot of the peer workers were feeling. I've actually had my nose tweaked by a doctor who um, it was my job to um, advocate for people yeah. and I did this and um, this doctor was ropeable that I advocated um, for this young woman and he actually pinned me in a corner and was yelling at me you know and and he flicked the end of my nose a couple of times while he was while he was doing it you know that that I I had my ties slashed that kind of thing was really common back um in the beginning of of um death threats regularly um in the beginning of um peer work but I think that's really changed now I think that now the value of peer work is being understood. Um, there's peer work um, certified training, you know, that peer workers can undertake. Yep. That's not to say that everybody that undertakes that is a good peer worker. You you either are a good peer worker or you're not, you yeah. know. You can certainly learn how to be a better peer worker, but you have to have the capabilities of being a peer worker. You're a good nurse or you're not. You're a good doctor yeah. or you're not. Same in any profession, I guess. I, t- t- tell us the uh, the role of the peer worker. Tell tell me what it is today, and also where what you think it will be in the future if there is a difference. Well, in teams that are valuing and utilizing and doing themselves a favour by doing that, um, they are a, they are a valued collaborative m- member of the team. You know, if you take some services are operating under um, a beautiful model out of Finland, which many of the people in your association will know about, the um, the open dialogue method. There's two open dialogue methods. One is used for people like me who are voice hearers to have an open dialogue with our voices. Um, and the other one is this where everybody, there's a collaboration of people, including the person who is the the patient or the consumer or the person um, and they all meet together and there are no discussions about this person without the person. So the, the activist mantra of nothing about me without me, you know, yeah. and 
everybody, parents, it might be school teachers, but psychologists, nurse, doctors, dietitian, whoever are the stakeholders that or the, the support team um, for these people come together and the peer workers are involved in that. And it's it's very often people with lived experience because it particularly if they know the peer workers, the peer workers probably Look, there's a very beautiful power, a beautiful power. Not, I'm not talking about, you know, my power is stronger than your power. There's a very beautiful power in, in shared vulnerability. You see it um, in AA and NA. You see it with new mums and their new babies, you know, talking to another mum and yep. their baby. Uh, if a person with lived experience purposefully openly shares their lived experience with someone else that person had it's it's a beautiful thing it's almost like an immediate trust and an immediate connection and they are prepared to listen they're prepared to tell they're prepared to tell more than what they normally would if the peer worker wasn't there the, um, they, they know that the peer worker has their back. They feel like the peer worker has their back. So they feel like they're not in this um, collaborative meeting about their own well-being alone, you know, which, but, and also the, every, all of the clinicians and nurses and that that are working in their model, they are, they have more of some of the qualities of a peer worker which is that preparedness to to show emotion and to show care and break down the those professional barriers that that um that so that you know people are taught um to to meet with this person on a human level and the outcomes are beautiful you know really they're, they're much faster usually um, less medication needed. Seclusion and restraint are not there in those services. Um, and uh, the outcomes are much better. So what do you think the role is of the peer worker in the future then? Do you think it's going to evolve? Well, do you think it can it evolve even yes, further to be more effective? Absolutely. Or? Look, it already is. Um, so uh, peer, the lived experience workforce, so when I say lived experience, I mean people with a personal um, that that have had mental health issues that that the clinic clinical staff say patients or consumers you know um, that so that's what I mean by lived experience. If I mean care, if I'm talking about carers and family members, I say carer and family experience. It's just too complicated to do it any other way, in my opinion. Yes. Um, yes. So um, the f- people with lived experience are already in other positions. Um, and really being valued in those positions. So I was the inaugural um, lived experience um, deputy commissioner for the New South Wales Mental Health Commission. Um, I, I used to and still do sit on state and national bodies at, and I may, I'm often the only lived experience per- person there. Like when I was on the program council, which in New South Wales, that's the peak um, mental health council where all the directors come together and I was the one lived experience person there um, 
Uh, and uh, I'm on, you know, I'm working with the National Commission at the moment, um, consulting with them about the, the next strategic, national strategic plan. Um, and I'm, in my current job, I'm um, general manager, so I'm one of the executive members of Flourish Australia. Um, so these are all designated lived experience roles. And we have at Flourish, if I talk about Flourish now, yeah. we yeah. have, um, we have uh, over 1,000 staff supporting over 9,000 people. Um, and we also do have around 300 supported employees as well. Um, so all of those people have um, lived experience and, and many of them have real psychosocial disability, you know. Um, but a very large percentage of our staff, around 60% of our staff, ident openly identify as having lived experience. And we, and, and then there's care and people who have care and family experience on top of that. And some of them might be both, you know, but yeah. around 60%.
management level or whatever, like and Mike Mine. Yes. But if we have two, um, if whatever the position is, other than Pewit, if we have two um, people that are very similar, of equal ability um, and experience, the preference, the, the, the job will be given to the person with lived experience. Faye, obviously, Flourish is leading the way in the peer workforce um, side of things. How do people, uh, because obviously lived experience can be um, a staff member of any organisations, really. Um, tell us, how do, how do employers uh, best support those with lived experience to get the most out of them? Yeah, well... Um the first place to start really is your culture. Yeah. So um, changing the language, first of all, will change your culture. So Flourish, we, we have, we've, we've written our own strengths-based language guide um, because there are words that we don't use. So we, we don't use the word consumer. Um, we just say people. Uh, we don't talk about diagnosis. We're not a clinical um we're not a clinical service. So diagnosis isn't what's important. We we talk about what the person needs and how we can support them to do that. Um, so it's you just, just don't use any othering language or any ownership language. So we ne- we don't well we try we try to encourage our staff not to say sometimes they still do, but but they're pretty good at it. Um, they don't shouldn't be saying things like I have a, a participant or I have this person, you know, or we have or my clients or, you know, that's all ownership language and that can affect the relationship. And then language like Joe's a schizophrenic. No, no, Joe's Joe. What does Joe need? It's a label, yeah. Yeah. So language, language can really define a culture. So the first place is to start with the culture. Um, And the best way I really think to do that is to employ people at all levels with lived experience. Um, But we often flourish, goes into workplaces, and we give talks um, at workplaces about um, the value of lived experience and how to support people with lived experience. And we can also give them training as well um, so that we can build up champions within their their workplace of of you know lived experience or mental health or well-being whatever they want to call it um and that really works very well in starting the change in the culture um and then if you have those at all levels but we also we at flourish we also use um which is a tool i think every workplace should have we all use so use something called a personal situation plan and the plan our personal situation plan doesn't have mental health or anything written on it anywhere, you know. It's just for a personal situation. So a person might need um, might need um, reasonable adjustments if they're a carer. They might need reasonable adjustments if they're having chemotherapy, if they've hurt their back, um, if they, you know, or if they've got a mental health issue. So... I'll tell you about my plan to to explain it and make it easy. So I have a plan and on my plan there are, I have three support people listed from my team 
Um, and they have to agree to it. Of course, it's no plan if if not everybody agrees. Do, and do you get to choose them, Faye? Do you get to choose sorry. the people or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you choose. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And on my plan, but but on my plan, I've got my boss and two of my colleagues, but but also um, um, Kim, who works for me. She, I've given her that copy of my plan, um, and she, it, it, she, I'm her boss, but it's, it's right and responsible, and real for Kim to know what the situation is. Yes. You know, and because, um, so on that plan, I'll tell you about the plan. So on the plan, I have what my triggers might be and what I need to do to avoid them and what the service can do to help me with that. Yes. Um, what my early warning signs might look like that other people might recognise that I might not recognise because I'm so busy doing everything. Um, what I need to do if somebody draws that to my attention or, or what I need to do if I recognise it, what, that, what the people on the plan can do. So my... I go and tell them, I say, this is what's happening. Um, can we enact the plan? They have the plan written there, what to do, when to do it, who to call, who not to call. That's a really big one. Not the police, please. I can't, I just can't go back into hospital. Yeah. So always call my husband. Please nice. don't call the ambulance or police. And um, it just works beautifully. And there's there's so accepted and appreciated at Flourish that there was an incident a few a few years back now I've been at Flourish for six years um, and there was an incident a few years back where I became psychotic quite really very suddenly at work and it usually comes on me slowly you know but it, it, something happened at work it triggered me and um, it came on suddenly and it was so confusing for me because there were new voices. I used to only have the same three voices, but there were some new voices. And so that was freaking me out that I was hearing voices at all. But what was also freaking me out was how were these people going to get along with my usual people? Were they going to be okay? One of the new people was really obnoxious. And so I, I was really concerned about how that was going to go, you know. And um, but the three people that were on my plan um, were actually all out. They were all out in the field doing things. So I took my plan and I went to see um, my colleague, um, Aidan, and I will say his name because I just think he's fantastic. And he, he is the nurse that I was talking about. So he isn't working as a nurse. He's working in operations. He's an, a, a general manager of operations. But I gave him the plan. He read it and we enacted the plan. He didn't call um, uh, the ambulance. He didn't call the police. He didn't patronise me. He, I, it, on my plan, it's that, it, that I will continue to work if I possibly can with these KBETs around it. So I don't send any external emails until they're checked, you know. Um, internally, they all know if they get a wacky kind of email, just decipher through it and and they'll find the message um, or just ring me up and say what was that meant to be about. But I don't send any external emails for a little while. And he, 
I, they didn't send me home. I didn't want to go home. I wanted to keep working. Responsibility keeps me grounded. You know, I'm going to be a lot better if I can stick with my work. Um, and there's actually research says that we recover better if we can continue to stay at work because if we get, um, if we have to leave work, we end up being excluded and it can be really frightening and hard to come back, you know. Um, uh, and he would just check in, his, he would just check in every hour or so, just put, put his head around my office and say, you all right there, Faye? And I'd say, yeah, I'm okay, Aidan. Thanks, yeah. mate. All right, you know where I am if you need me. What are those voices up to? Oh, they're telling me this and that. You know that you know that's rubbish, Faye. You know that's not true. What they're saying about you, you know, yeah. and and I'd say thanks, Aiden, yeah. and he'd go off. And then last year, another situation happened, and I thought my hand was a snake. And um, Aiden again, um, and Kim, and one of my other colleagues supported me, managed me through it, and. Yeah. You know, I recover so much faster. You know, that, that first time, two weeks, and it used to take me two years, you know. Faye, why so, do you think that uh, personal situation plan, why do you think it's so effective? Because everybody's on the same page, you yeah. know. Um, there's no guessing. It takes yeah. away a lot of the fear. Yep. I'm confident that that I know if something happens that they will support me. Yeah. So it actually acts. A preventative tool most of the time. I know I've just told you that there's been two times I've been psychotic, but um, there could have been a lot more than that, you yeah. know, in six years. And um, but it, it really works as a preventative tool because I'm not afraid. I know they've got my back. I know they value me. They've told me they have by agreeing to this plan. They've told me that they will support me to stay at work. They've told me that they're happy to do reasonable adjustments. You know, so I'm safe. Yeah. I'm safe there. Yeah. All of me. I don't have to hide any part of me. I'm safe. So it. So I get a lot less mental health issues working at Flourish because I'm safe there, you know. And then they're all on the same page. Look, you know, oops, phase, phase wheels are wobbly. We know what we have to do. They don't have to guess. They don't have to be afraid. They just stick to the plan. And it, it works beautifully. I think, too, the thing is that it's not just about the situation with me, right? They learn through that situation with me and that informs their work with our other staff and with the people that are accessing the service. And it, it, it also, you know, it, it, it increases the value too of lived experience because they understand, like Mark or, or my boss the other day, I've been going through um, something of late, which, well, you know, I've been manic lately and I love it and I've, I haven't had it for a long time and I've been so grateful that it's back again, you know. I just love it. But I've, I'm... You know, I'm doing pretty well with controlling and nobody ring the ambulance, please. Nobody call the cops. No need for that, you know. <laughs> so, but Mark has been really supportive of me and he's saying, I can see that you're managing with hard work to keep it under control. I can see that this 
that this isn't what you would like to be doing. I can see that you would rather be doing lots of different things. But I really appreciate that you're managing to keep this under control. And when I was psychotic, he was saying the same thing. I think you're doing really well, Faye, you know, and as I was pulling out of it, I think you're doing really well. And I'd say to him, look, I'm having a day today that isn't so good. And he'd say, it's okay, you know. And him just doing that makes it okay, Yeah. you know. Like if he was going, oh, well, you know, Jeez, do you think we do you think we better get George on? You think we you better go and see your psychiatrist? Like they don't talk to me like I'm a patient. They talk to me like I'm a colleague. It, it's so you said it earlier, Faye, where you said it's so simple but yet so powerful. It's so simple and so powerful. I I find it really difficult to understand why services are so fearful of employing large numbers of people with lived experience. Mm. Um, I really, because it works so well, you know, there is a big difference between a nurse with lived experience or a psychiatrist with lived experience or psychologist. They They make, in my opinion, better nurses and psychologists and psychiatrists if they have a lived experience. But that isn't their job, you know, designated roles where it's their job to use their lived experience, that's a, it's a different dynamic. It's a different paradigm, you know, and nurses with lived experience can't work the same as a peer worker. A nurse still has to have, a nurse still has those um, clinical duties the peer workers must not do, you know, cannot and must not do. If we if we step over into doing any of those clinical duties, then we're no longer working as a peer worker, uh, you know. But at Flourish, um, our, our peer workers do work differently to a lot of services peer workers. Um, I have been accused um, because the why not a peer worker strategy i drove that you know and and we went from um 22 and and part-time peer workers to 147 in 12 months and now up to you know well well beyond that um but i was accused externally of of not of betraying um peer work because our peer workers are expected to do um uh, practical tasks with the people that they're supporting um, and peer work didn't a lot of services don't think that's peer work that that that's the the work of you know workers other than peer workers but my point is that if if I'm supporting if I'm if I was a peer worker and I'm at the front line and I'm supporting someone who has had profound um, psychological distress uh, for quite a time. They may have been in hospital a lot or in an institution. Uh, We support a lot of the people that used to be in the old institutions and that. And a lot of the people have psychosocial disability that is learned or that has come about because they've forgotten how to do things. 
if I'm a peer worker and I'm sitting with a person who has lived experience and I'm preparing a meal with them, we never do things for people. We do them with. And I'm I'm peeling a potato or whatever and I say, here, Joe, can you know, you do it too, mate. And we're talking about our own lived experience while we're doing these tasks. Now, people often open up more when they're busy doing things. You know, if people are going for a drive, they're more likely to have a chat then. Doing the washing up beside somebody at the sink, they're more likely to have a chat. And, and the practical tasks that we do, that they do open up more. They also, le- they also look at me if I'm the worker and say when they know my story that, you know, I've been treated against my will and hospitalised and um, under the Mental Health Act and community treatment orders and one thing or another, you know, and I've shared things, you know, I've shared that I've been suicidal. I would never share any details of that. That would be really inappropriate thing to do. I share that I was sexually abused as a child, never give any details, or that I was raped as an adult, never give any details. Just you say those things so that people know your experience. You don't have to give details. They know what those things feel like. Um, and you connect. And there they're peeling their potato while I'm peeling my potato and they're thinking, if she can do it, so can I. Yeah. You know, that's, that happens all the time. And the, the people that come to us from different services, um, and there are some other great services out there for sure, um, but there are some that weren't working so well. Um, but have come to us from different services and have come with paper like a dog, you know, when you when you get a, a lost dog that you adopt and come with paper that I remember this one man, we would on the paper said that he he was a paranoid schizophrenic, so they'd given him the he was the diagnosis. He was a paranoid schizophrenic, he was mute. And he was illiterate, right? A peer worker went in to speak with this gentleman and within five minutes the gentleman was speaking because the peer worker told him what his position was and a very little bit about his background. And that sharing that vulnerability is a powerful connector. Mm. That was what I was saying before about vulnerability is powerful. It's a powerful connector. And he, within five minutes, he opened up. And um, our um, peer worker said, they said you were mute. And he said, no, I'm not mute. I've never been mute. And he said, why didn't you talk to them? And the peer worker said, why didn't you talk to them? And he said, they never listened. What was the point in talking? Wow. And um, and then he he had some forms that he wanted to you know, and he um, was reading them out to him, and he said, "Are you able to sign your name?" And he said, "It's really difficult for me to see, but if you can show me where, you know, in the general, I'll sign my name there." So he signed his name, 
and the the um, signature was pretty good, you know. And the peer worker said, what is it? What do you think you need first? What can we help you with first? And he said, I don't think I see the way other people see. And Michael, the peer worker said, what do you mean, mate? And he said, I don't, he'd been institutionalised from when he was a child, you know. Wow. And he said, I don't, I don't think I see how other people see. And he said, well, will we get your eyes tested? And he said, yes. There's nothing to do with mental health, right? So we, Michael took him and got his eyes tested and he badly needed thick glasses, you know. So he got glasses and he picked up a magazine and read. He wasn't illiterate. He just couldn't see. Yeah, wow. And then, and, and then the next thing Michael said to him, what is it that, you would like next and he said I think I'd like some teeth and he said what do you mean and then he put his head up because he he was talking to him like this all the time then he put his head up and smiled and he only had two two teeth and Marcus said oh we better get you to so we got him dentures and then he wanted to go out he wasn't paranoid he wanted to go out he was embarrassed and shy because he had no teeth and within a year of being with us, we had this, a, a video of this lovely gentleman sitting on a couch talking to the camera saying what a difference this had made to his life and that he was now working towards becoming a peer worker. No sign of schizophrenia or whatever, but even if there was, he could still be a fantastic peer worker and that's what he's working towards. So. What an incredible story, yeah. It, but it's real. Yeah. It's real, Sam. This is what happens. That, that's not an unusual story for us. That's a really regular yeah. um, occurrence, you know. And also I think, too, that peer, um, peer workers and people with lived experience are really bringing to the foreground the fact that people with lived experience, serious enduring lived experience, especially as the terminology is, we die young. We die much younger. Some research says 10 to 15 years. I've read other research that says around 27 years. So I've outlived my stay already. I should, should be gone. Um, lucky for the, if this mania continues, I'll live forever, you know. But, um, so, um, but I think that they're really bringing to the foreground too that we must, mental health services, um, must take care of our physical health care too. Yeah. As soon as we're put on these really heavy-duty psych meds, like I put on, I used to be a skinny little thing, you know, and within um, within two months I had put on 22 kilos, and that's not uncommon. And people put on 30, 40 kilos, it's not uncommon. And so then when we, we end up getting diabetes and heart disease and we are our medication slows us down and makes us feel sluggish so we don't exercise, you know. like. Yeah. But I I don't smoke. Um, I don't um, – I do drink a little bit occasionally, but maybe two – literally maybe two drinks a week because I would like to drink a lot more than that, so I have to be really careful. Yeah. Um, I, um, I have – I mean, the, I've been with my husband since I was 15. 
um, I have my own home. So a lot of what, a lot of why we've got poor mental health is put down to that we smoke, we drink, we don't eat well, we're not in loving relationships, we don't live in safe environments. Well, I have all of those things yeah. and I have, um, I'm sorry, I have all of those things in a positive sense mm-hmm. and I take 24 tablets, 20, 23 tablets a day trying to manage my physical health conditions that have come about within a very short time of taking psych meds. And that needs to be considered. You know, like my husband and I are currently managing my mania and I'm an older person. I've learned a lot now about managing this, you know, and my husband's learned a lot about it too. And people say, how does your husband cope? And I always used to make a joke. This is the first time I've used it for a long time because I haven't been manic for a long time. But I always used to say, well, it's very simple. When I'm depressed, he plays a lot of golf. And when I'm manic, he takes a lot of Barocca. <laughs> but so it's, it's, um, it's a really, it, you know, it's a really important thing, mm. I think, for um, doctors of all persuasions, nurses of all persuasions, to recognise that our physical health is substantially negatively impacted by the psych meds that we're put on you know that yeah. that needs to be talked about that needs to be owned it's, you know it's a great really needs to be owned yeah i really sorry Sam. no it's a really great point that you make and you forget about that the side yeah. effect of that you know i mean it's uh as you say it can be severely detrimental to your long-term health um it's, as you pointed yeah. out Faye, like i've got a very bad neurological condition because okay. of the um the meds and, you know, I've had thyroid cancer, you know, the wow. lithium undermined my thyroid. So now I said lithium, everybody knows. Well, anyway, I said, Manny, you already knew. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, there's my kidneys, my liver, yeah. everything is really suffering, you know, yeah. um, because of the meds that I've been on. Um, so, and my husband feels terrible that he was complicit in that you know like carers are often saying i wish my son or i wish my daughter or i wish my partner would take just take their meds but we've got to this age now and my husband is very sad that he was complicit in me taking these medications yeah well it's uh i mean a beautiful story Faye, and uh what an incredible journey that you've been on uh, I just have one more question for you. The future of Flourish, the future of what's in store for you, tell us what's coming up for, for yourself and Flourish. Well, Flourish, we're, we're always changing in Flourish. We're always, every service should be trying to improve, so we're, we're always trying to improve. But our focus, we've, been, uh, we've had our recovery action framework that we've been working from um, we I wrote we wrote that when I just started working um, with Flourish, so we finished that sort of nearly six years ago, and we've been working off that framework ever since, um, and our strategic plan. But I've, I've recently with we've co-designed um, a, a big co-design group. We've been writing now our social citizenship framework which we that will build on top of our recovery framework and we're actually going to start talking much more about social citizenship 
rather than just recovery. And that's because we're actually not seeing people reach their full potential and we think that some a lot of people are, but everybody needs to reach their full potential. Yes. Whatever that level of potential is, uh-huh. that they need to reach it. We think that because people get mixed messages about recovery, so I was told um, I would never recover. So I, um, I was told when I was given the diagnosis of bipolar schizoaffective disorder, I was told um, you'll never work and you'll never be a valuable member of society and you will never recover. You just will need to manage this for the rest of your life. And, and I was told that I probably wouldn't be able to keep my relationship. Um, I did run interstate with my children a couple of times, but I kept them safe on the run, so why couldn't I keep them anyway? And they've, you know, grown up to be really amazing people. The, so the discussion about what is recovery, whether it's clinical recovery, so no more symptoms, you know, no more cognitive deficit because of it or psychosocial disability because of it. That's the definition of a clinical recovery. Well, a lot of, we have a council of people who access the service. And like me, there are a number of people on the council who are voice hearers. Um, And they um, can be working with me We can be writing co-design guidelines, policies, protocols, um, the the framework we're working on now, hearing voices and still contributing really well. Now, those people, they tell me that being on the council has really transformed their lives. And that got me thinking, if this council has transformed their lives, when we've already been giving them supports and service and they've come in to do the council, but they're saying the council is true, that what we were doing was transform their lives, but this was a whole nother level of transformation. Mm. It got me thinking that why can't, why isn't everybody having that kind of opportunity, you know? So um, we, we worked off a, paper from Michael Rowe called The Five R's and we, and we um, came up with a sixth R um, and I probably won't remember them all just off the top of my head, but there's roles, rights, responsibilities, resources, relationships, oh, and roots. There you are. I, I remembered them all. Yes. Um, and these are the basis of the framework that we're writing so that people um, if they can't, the recovery won't be the argument. It's about social citizenship, about people claiming their social citizenship, even if they're not legal yet or whatever, or they've come out of jail, that they can be social citizens, belong in their community, in their communities of choice, um, be valued and contribute. Everybody needs to be contributing, you know. it's yeah. You need to be needed. You need to be valued. You need to be contributing. And we have a lot of services in rural and remote areas um, in New South Wales and we have um, some around Sunshine Coast in Queensland um, and a small one in Victoria. Um, 
and we we are expanding into another state shortly by invitation um, from that government. Um, and we um, we want to really focus on people knowing that they can be contributing members of society. Mm. They can contribute to their family. They can form good relationships that will last. They can have intimate relationships. You know, a lot of the people that we support have never had an intimate relationship. You know, think about that. Think about going to your grave without ever having had an intimate relationship. You know, I, I spoke to one man one day at a, a speech I was giving and he spoke to me. He was impeccably dressed, just impeccable, beautiful um, clothing. There wasn't a wrinkle in his shirt and a tie, wasn't, just, wasn't a hair out of place and he was talking to me, very shy and withdrawn and anxious talking to me and he was telling me a few things about his life. And then I said, would you like a cuddle, mate? And he said, what? And I said, would you like a cuddle? He said, you'd cuddle me? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, if if you'd like. Would you like a hug? And he said, yeah. So I gave him a hug and he put his head on my shoulder and he sobbed. He just sobbed. And, you know, he said, it cracks me up every time to think of it because I get cuddles every day. He said it was the first cuddle he'd had since his mum had died 30 years ago. Wow. You know, like where's the citizenship? Yeah. Where's the community around that gentleman? He was a gentle man. He wasn't just a gentleman. He was a gentle man, you know. where Where is his citizenship? Where does he belong? You know, and so that's what we're focusing on. We're focusing on people finding their their fullest potential, um, and and being valued for who they are, including if they have symptoms, and being able to work. We're getting a lot of people in employment. Get being able to work, even with your symptoms. Yep. And being able to contribute, reframe. You're not broken. You know. What I often say to people, you you know, people with lived experience are like, um, I can't remember the name, but it starts with kintsugi, kintsugi pots or um, bowls. They are, um, it, Japanese have this thing, it's a craft and a philosophy. If a pot or a bowl um, jug gets broken, they mend it with liquid glass, put all the pieces back and Men, not with liquid glass, with liquid gold mm. around all the cracks and put the back together. The liquid gold acts like a glue and glues it all back together again. And then they know, they say, that that pot that was broken is now much more valuable that it's mended mm. now that it's been mended. Yeah. And so it wouldn't have become that valuable without having been broken, first of all. So that's that's the metaphor that I try to get people to reframe mm. their lived experience um, and not we in the social citizenship, but the recovery action framework was the same. We do not talk about diagnosis. We talk about what people need, 
what their goals are and we're going to help them more and more to get their goals. And unfortunately, what we'll have to do, a lot of the work that we'll have to do is prepare the community, support the communities and other workplaces to be willing to, to allow these people to take their rightful place in society, to be contributing citizens. So we know that a lot of our work isn't going to, there's no funding, there's no NDIS funding <laughs> to um, to go out and talk to communities um, and uh, workplaces to try and prepare them so that they value um, and we'll we'll give it a go to support people and employ people with lived experience or have them as volunteers or let them join their art club or or whatever you know and I want to be able to be um, you know take a visitor to our service in whatever town they're in, in Newcastle, say, or, or Burke or Broken Hill, wherever. We've got services all over the place, little tiny ones too, and just go for take them for a drive. Do you want to come and see our service? Okay, well, there's the library. That's part of our service. Oh, that's that's um, Williams Park there. That's part of our service. Mm. Uh, that's that's the, um, the social bowls group there meeting. That's part of our service. There's the CWA, that's part of our service. You know, that's how a service should be. That's how a community should be. And that's how we as um, Australians and as people just all over the world should be towards people with lived experience. So well put. Uh, and you can clearly tell that you're very passionate um, and driven to make a difference with this. And and clearly all the things that you're up to with Flourish, uh, you're certainly walking the walk with that. So what a great job um, that you're doing and, and fantastic to get the opportunity to have a chat with you about the, the wonderful things you're up to, shed a lot of light on this on the peer workforce and and what's happening with that and, and moving forward, how you see it uh, in the future. So, Faye, I appreciate your time. Is there anything you want to say in, in closing? Well, um, oh yes, I ha haven't got the book with me. Sam, something really wonderful happened um, recently where a, a group of nurses who are writing um, a new text, they're from Queensland um, University, asked me to write, I'm not sure, but they're from Queensland, one of the universities in Queensland, um, asked me to write the foreword for their nursing text book. A person with lived experience asked to write the foreword for a nursing textbook. That was incredibly generous mm. and shows an openness and a wisdom beyond anything probably that I've seen before from a group of people who knew that they were writing um, a, an official text um, that was going to be read and used by nurses, not only within Australia but across the world. And, and I think that they have paved the way for a much greater understanding of the value of lived experience. And that text also talks about the value of nursing staff with lived experience and supporting each other um, through that and 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 that's what we should be doing as whether we're psychologists nurses social workers psychiatrists gps whatever that's what we all should be doing 
Um, and I think that, that I think that workplaces, services, and the community as a whole will be a whole lot nicer place mm. to be to live in if that's what we do. So I really thank all the clinici clinicians, nurses, doctors, psychiatrists, social workers who have the attitude that um, that these nurses have. I can sh I could get the book and show you if you wanted, but yeah, that's, so uh... I just want to thank them and for being so open and wise and being prepared to to open up to the value of lived experience. Everybody will benefit from this. Very well put, Faye, and what a way to uh, to summarise and, and close the, uh, the recording. So I appreciate your time and thanks very much for joining me on the call. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.